Well, let's pray together. We come to your word, Heavenly Father, with thanks that your blessing is upon us when we open it and read it and think about it. We pray that you would bless us this morning, refresh us and deliver us from many things that would keep us from putting our hope and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having laid to rest King Solomon, we come back again to where we left off in November last year, picking up the flow of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, following the narrative of the events right up to and including chapter 20. And we're doing this under the heading of the King and His Kingdom. Along the way, we'll come across Numerous miracles, occasional sections of teaching and various events that all happened as Jesus went about doing good and preaching the kingdom of God. Now as we come to verses 53 to 58 of Matthew 13, it's important to note that we reach the first of many turning points in Matthew's record of the ministry of Jesus And the turning point is this, that the popularity that Jesus had been receiving was now fading. And instead, in the place of popularity, was a growing hostility. And Matthew's reference to this hostility at this point is here to remind us why it was that Jesus was now more focused on teaching his disciples and why he did that in parables when speaking to the crowds. He did so that hardened hearts would remain hardened and that those whose hearts were tender toward him would be drawn to him. But Matthew includes this reference to growing hostility here to tell us why also Jesus would soon leave the region of Galilee where he had been preaching and ministering for the region of Judea where the next aspect of this ministry would take place. Now this is worth noticing just for a moment. The fact that Jesus moved on from one region to another and took his ministry and his miracles with him reminds us just what he did, what he taught his disciples to do when they were faced with rejection of their message. Get up and leave. Jesus was about to get up and leave, to shake the dust off his feet, so to speak, to turn his back on those who would not receive him just as God in judgment does and will do to those who harden their hearts toward him. He will give them what they want. He will leave them. And that, my friends, is the worst kind of judgment that we can ever conceive of and one that we must pray will never come to us because we fail to respond to the preaching of the gospel. Now in our text this morning, through these events that happened to the Lord Jesus, 
we learn some matters that I'd like to direct your attention to. First of all, in verses 53 to 57, we're introduced to those who rejected Jesus in his hometown and we note the hardness of their hearts. Matthew pulls no punches here and he paints for us a rather ugly picture. After Jesus had finished speaking his parables, he journeyed to Nazareth and he preached in the synagogue there on the Sabbath. And as he preached there, the people were amazed at his teaching and struck with wonder, dumbfounded by the way that he taught and what he said. Dumbfounded, yes, but not to the point of believing in him. They were, we are told in verse 57, offended by what he said. Now Matthew does not give us a description of what Jesus preached here, but Luke does, and you can find that in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. And there you find that Jesus' message was very in your face to the people of Nazareth. He was clear, very clear, that the prophet Isaiah's words that he preached on that day applied to them and that they were guilty of hardening their hearts against God's message of truth. And so it was a very strong message, calling them to repentance and condemning them for their unbelief. And so you can understand why they might have reacted negatively to what Jesus told them. But Matthew doesn't record what Jesus said for one reason. He wants us to note that the hearts of these people who rejected Jesus, he wants us to note their hearts. It's not what about Jesus said. It's not about his method or his preaching style or that he looked mean when he spoke or that he raised his voice or that he pointed fingers or he called them names. It's the fact that their hearts were hard that meant they responded as they did. Now, having done some brief research on things that can go wrong with your heart, I was surprised to learn there's quite a number of things that can go wrong and I'm aware that for some of you that's very real, very, very real. For some of you, quite invasive treatments have had to be reverted to in order to fix the problem of the heart, physical heart. But nothing medical or surgical can be done in relation to the issue of a hardened heart. See, at the start of the chapter, Jesus told us one of his better-known parables, the parable of the sower. And in that parable, he spoke of those who hear the word of God, but because their hearts are hard or are rocky ground, uncultivated, the seed does not get beyond the surface and the birds come down and snatch it away. And this describes the people of Nazareth to a T. They were impressed by what they saw and heard and yet rejected what their eyes and ears told them. Mark and Luke tell us that they threw Jesus out of Nazareth after this, while Matthew notes the great offence they took explaining it in these terms, that Jesus, one they knew, one from their own town, 
an uneducated tradesman should preach like a rabbi or do miracles like a prophet. They couldn't put these things together. They couldn't understand how this could be. That on the one hand, Jesus was one of their own and just a carpenter. And on the other hand, he was acting like he was, a rabbi and a teacher and a prophet. And while they were amazed at him, they still didn't put their hope in him. One commentator says here, it seems strange to those who had known him all his life that one who had been trained solely as a carpenter and who had no further education should not only be teaching as though he were a qualified rabbi but displaying what was clearly supernatural power. Another says, as these people saw it, Jesus was not supposed to reveal such wisdom and such power, for he had not enjoyed a higher education, and besides, he was merely one of them. That was precisely the response to the people, of the people, to Jesus. These people of Nazareth were blinded to Jesus' teaching and claims because they were preoccupied with his origins. They remembered him when, they lived, when he lived there before. They knew his family. They couldn't put the two and two together. His teaching, his claims, his power, those things didn't gel with what they knew about him. And so secondly, in the text, you'll see in the second half of verse 57, the danger of their assumptions. The hardness of their hearts, the danger of their assumptions. In this part of the verse, we see how Jesus responded to the people in Nazareth and their words about him. As he said, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, among other things... These words of Jesus teach us that in spiritual things, as it is in many other things, familiarity often breeds contempt. It mattered quite a lot that these people held to, clung to and would not let go of their prior knowledge, or should we say prejudice, of Jesus. Though they had been amazed at what he taught in their synagogue, amazed at the miracles they had seen and heard about, this amazement did not lead them to that point of putting their hope and trust in him. So you have to ask why. Why was that? And the answer is that they had become familiar with Jesus. They said they knew him. They said they knew his family. They said they knew his earthly father. They said they knew his mother who was still living. And there, they said they knew his brothers and his sisters. And all that they knew became a stumbling block. In fact, all that they knew became in their minds that sufficient reason in their minds to reject him and eliminate the possibility of his words being true. And that's why Jesus responded with this proverb, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown or in his own household. 
Now, those who consider themselves sceptical about Jesus and the gospel today, well, they may well comfort themselves with thoughts like this. Well, you know, I'd be in much better position to decide for or against Jesus if I had lived with him in his own earthly ministry. Or if I could have been there and seen him feed the 5,000 or raise Lazarus from the dead, well, maybe then I would have believed in him. But such arguments are foolish. The problem is not and has never been that we are too far away from these times when these things happened because there were thousands of people who saw all that Jesus did and heard him who rejected him outright. Bishop J.C. Ryle says here, do we fancy that if we had only seen and heard Jesus that we would have been his faithful disciples? If we do, let us not think so. Let us observe the people of Nazareth and learn wisdom. They saw the miracles, they heard him preach and they rejected him. You see, the problem is not that we must rely upon the testimony of the apostles instead of seeing these things firsthand or that these things happened long ago or that the scriptures are unreliable records of these events. It's not a lack of evidence which makes us insecure about trusting in the Lord Jesus when there's all the evidence in the world to back up his claims. And so we must warn against becoming complacent with what is familiar to us, whether it be the scriptures we read from day to day or hear preached on from week to week. These are privileges we cannot assume that we will forever enjoy on earth. Thirdly, in verse 58, Jesus teaches us the third thing, and that's the poison of their unbelief. And Matthew adds the comment as a conclusion to the event, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Here the Gospel writer makes it plain for us that unbelief is a deadly spiritual poison. It's not only that we learn in this passage that some will refuse to believe in Jesus no matter how clear the teaching is or how clear the evidence. It's not only that in spiritual things familiarity breeds contempt but it's also true that unbelief kills spiritual life. And here Matthew gets to the very root cause of the the people's offence at Jesus. It's not just that they were over-familiar with him, but also their hearts were captively held in unbelief. They were unbelievers who heard him at Nazareth. They were hardened in their hearts against him. That was their basic problem. It was not a lack of evidence. It was not a lack of clarity surrounding Jesus' claims or his methods of explaining and applying the scripture. It's not that he hadn't done impressive miracles. It's that their hearts were hardened as we established. Mark brings this to attention. Chapter 6, verse 5, where he says, Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon upon a few sick people and healed them. Matthew, of course, as we're looking at, tells us he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. 
Now let's think about this. That phrase, Jesus could do no miracle there, has been very frequently applied wrongly by faith healers who falsely claim that God didn't deliver the healing he wanted to give them through them because the one needing healing didn't have enough faith. And to back up their testimony, they will appeal to a text like this as proof of their position. But please, please note that this is not at all what this passage is teaching. The people of of Nazareth were not doubting that Jesus could do miracles. But they were doubting that he was the Messiah. The faith that the Bible encourages us to have is not one that believes that Jesus can do miracles and supernatural things in your life. That's never called for. Rather, it means, it is one that means you call upon and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and that you trust him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the Gospels to you. That's the kind of faith that's required. That's the kind of faith that's been spoken about here. It's the absence of this kind of faith which meant that Jesus did not do miracles in their midst. People of all kinds through the Gospels came to Jesus at various times with various kinds of needs and we know that Jesus responded positively whenever anyone came to him in faith. But he did not do the miracles for those who did not come to him. Take a look for yourself. See, Jesus did no miracles for the Pharisees as a group. Because in their minds and hearts, they had already rejected him as Messiah. And therefore they would not come to him to be saved or for his help. The text here is not an excuse for anybody to say to you, this isn't working because you lack faith. Rather it's a demonstration of what unbelief does in the power and the purpose of God. The point is that no one believed and no one came to him. The point is that their hardness of heart kept these people from bringing their needs to Jesus and the consequence was only a few miracles were done because only a few came to him. It was, not, it was that they would not come to him, not their lack of faith. So what to conclude? Uh, clearly our text tells us of those who did not believe Jesus, of those who rejected his testimony. The people of Nazareth, people who are and were people just like modern day people, educated, life-loving family-oriented, hard-working. And yet on this most important matter, when it came to responding to the gospel, hard-hearted. Joining the ranks of Pharaoh, who stands in the scriptures as one of the hardest of hearts. How do we understand this? 
Well, let's take it back to the reading we had from Isaiah 1, where the Lord indicates that the issue that we all face, if we too are spoken of in the text as God's people, the issue we all face is much more serious than we think. There the Lord indicated that there's a huge problem with all of us, described in this way, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. In other words, sin has invaded and affects every aspect of our being. In Reformed theology, we speak about this as total depravity. Not to point out that we are as bad as we can be, but that sin has affected every aspect of our life. Our minds, our will, our affections, our heart. Our thinking can be wrong because of sin. As much as our actions can be wrong because of sin. And of course our hearts are wrong because of sin. It affects every aspect of our response to God. Nothing is right in and of ourselves. We are totally depraved. But the second part of the reading of Isaiah 1 gives us hope, doesn't it? Though our sin is so bad, God's grace is so much greater and he offers to all who will come to him, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as wool, sorry, as white as snow, though they are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. So for this condition of total depravity that we face, there is the offer of complete washing and cleansing, or as the other prophets tell us, a new heart and a new spirit. And so if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, this is what God has done for you. If your hope is now in him, it's because God has softened your hard heart and by the message of the gospel and through the grace that's received from God he has shown you not only what needs to be done to change that heart of yours but he has also changed that heart of yours he has enabled you to come to him And be united to him. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. This grace has delivered you from a hard, unbelieving heart in order to embrace Christ offered to us in the gospel. And this leads to a challenge all of us face, whether we believe or we don't believe, to keep our hearts soft and to keep them from going hard. We find this in Psalm 95 and repeated in Hebrews 3, which should be on the screen. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Which is just what the people of Israel did long ago in the desert, remember? Remember? And it's something that we still can fall for. And how does this passage address you if you're not a believer? Well, just this. If you're not in the position of saying, sorry, if you are in the position of saying, I don't believe 
because there's not enough reasonable evidence, then you find yourself standing right with the people of Nazareth who are saying, I will not believe what I cannot understand. To that, St Augustine says back, you will not understand if you will not believe. That means the only place when where we can go when struggling with unbelief is to our knees. To beg God to open our eyes that we might know for ourselves the truth of the saving grace of God in Christ. And if you do know him, may you be reminded afresh that that grace reached you first and placed your feet on solid ground, delivering you from the perils of a hardened heart, poison of unbelief. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this record in the life of the Lord Jesus that happened to him at Nazareth when he spoke and his words were rejected. And they were rejected for various reasons, but mostly because sin had gripped the heart of these people and they would not turn from it, would not come to him and believe in him and receive from him. We confess our own hardened hearts when we at times for various reasons, allow that hardened heart to dominate, keeping us from coming to you. Deliver us, Lord, from the perils of unbelief. We remember the man of the very sick boy in the scriptures who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We pray too that you would deal with our unbelief. And for any who hear this message, be it today or any other time, that you would work in them, that they too might know what it means to come to Christ in faith and trust, remembering that he will never turn away anyone who comes to him in that way. These things we pray in his name. Amen.